Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are continuing in Matthew 10. This is a chapter where Jesus has sent his apostles out on their first missionary journey, and we see that he has warned them of nothing but persecution, persecution, persecution. He's going to finish up this chapter after warning of this persecution with some rewards for those who go out and subject themselves to this persecution. We'll start in verse 32 in Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, Jesus said, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, what does this word confess mean? Is this just a a confession of belief in Jesus, just in your heart, a confession in your heart? No, confession means outwardly, means to say with your mouth. Adam Clark says this, I will keep my religion to myself i.e. you will not confess Christ before men, then he will will renounce you before God. It's just as simple as that. In other words, people who follow Jesus, they're going to tell people they follow Jesus. If they start saying things like, well, my religion's a private thing, you better doubt they're saved. Because if you know Jesus, you're going to confess him before men. Confessing only in your heart is is not really denying Jesus before men, not per se. However, the scripture does say to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Where is that? Romans 10, the Romans road, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. People need to say what they believe. Whoever denies me before men, this is in the context of persecution. I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. And again, as I said in previous audios, in the previous parts of this chapter, the persecution was going to be very, very severe from the Jews against the early Christian apostles. Let's look at some other scriptures about denial of Christ. Luke 9 verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. Those are strong words. We cannot be ashamed of Christ. Second Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Pretty straightforward. Now notice this denial. This means continue to deny. This doesn't mean that someone being tortured and denies Christ has no chance of salvation, that he can't repent of his, of his renunciation of the faith. He might revoke his denial after the torture's over. I remember reading Richard Wormbrand's story of how prisoners, he's the famous Christian writer who talked about communist persecution of Christian prisoners, and when they would torture, the communist prison guards would torture, I think it was in Romania, they would torture the Christian prisoners and scream, and, they, and, the, and the other Christians would hear the screams, and then the torturing would stop, and the Christian prisoner had renounced his faith in Christ, and he felt terrible about it. One brand said that those who listened to that denial of Christ did not turn their back on their Christian brother at all. They understood the torture, and they forgave him, and they took him back in. This is not what it's talking about. It's talking about people of their own free will not being tortured. They say, no, I'm not going to confess Jesus. I mean, if we're going to say that one denial of Christ is going to deny us citizenship in heaven, what about Peter? He denied Christ three times, but he took those denials back. And notice also that uh, his boldness about Christ came after he was filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. And all Christians today have that access to that power of the Holy Spirit to help us overcome the fears that we have when people with power start oppressing us. Denying a teacher's, a master's teaching was a heinous crime, a heinous crime with the Jews, according to Gill. So this was a terrible thing. 
Well, if it's a terrible thing to deny a rabbi's teaching, it's a terrible thing to deny the Son of God's teaching, the Messiah's teaching. And so Jesus is just telling them, look, don't deny me. I'm going to deny you. That's, and you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Being a disciple is serious, serious business. And I'm telling you, I've started telling people this. Uh, young Christians, you better know what you're doing when you follow Jesus because when the persecution comes, you got to know where you stand. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. Now this is a strange verse when you consider that Jesus is con considered to be the Prince of Peace. And Jesus, the Prince of Peace says, I did not come to bring peace on the earth, I came to bring a sword. This does not, however, contradict scriptures that say Jesus will bring peace to the earth. In fact, let's read some of those scriptures. Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So Jesus is the Prince of Peace, according to Isaiah, the prophecy in Isaiah. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace among men with whom he is pleased. The famous Christmas passage. Peace. And then this is one of my favorite verses in John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Well, how do you reconcile that? Well, it's very easy. Jesus came to bring peace between believers and God. He came to bring peace between believers and other believers. But he did not come to bring peace between Jesus and Antichrist. He did not come to bring peace between light and darkness. He did not come to bring peace between Jesus' children and the devil's children. And unfortunately, some of your family members might be the devil's children. And when you get saved, they're going to come after you. Now, I see this all. I mean, I had it happen in my own family. I've seen it happen in Chinese families families all the time. So what Jesus was talking about here, he said, you're going to go out through the cities of Israel and you're going to evangelize about the kingdom of God. And you just might as well get ready for the, for the fact, for the situation that some of your converts are going to have their family members turn on them and start persecuting them. So just get ready for it. He, he's trying to prepare them as, as they go out. Now, a sword, he said, I didn't come to bring peace, but I came to bring a sword. Luke, in the parallel version in Luke chapter 12, verse 51, or at least in another passage. I'm not sure it's the parallel version, but it's another passage. Jesus says this, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. So Luke has division instead of sword. A sword is something which cuts and divides. That means there's going to be a division between Christians and non-Christians, and nothing's going to stop that. Now this, of course, when Jesus says, I came to bring a sword, this does not mean that Christians were to take up military arms against governments. That would, of course, contradict Romans 13, where we're supposed to submit to the government. But it did mean that war and civil strife was coming to the Jews. They did not come to bring peace but a sword because there's going to be a lot of trouble in Israel before 8070 when they finally went down. Adam Clark puts it this way. From the time they rejected the Messiah, they were a, pr they were a prey to the most cruel and destructive factions. They employed their time in butchering one another till the Roman sword was unsheathed against them and desolated the land. This is Adam Clark referring to AD 70. Luke, Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 12, verse 49, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. In other words, Jesus was ready for judgment on these horrible, this horrible Jewish rabbinic system that was oppressing the people that he loved. Little Jesus, meek and mild, the Prince of Peace. People have turned Jesus into a wuss. 
They say God of the Old Testament is a God of judgment, but no love. When you can find love everywhere in the Old Testament. Then in the New Testament, they say Jesus is the God of love, but he's not a God of judgment. And there's judgment all over the place in the New Testament. It's people that just don't want to see it because they're the ones that are probably going to get judged themselves. This quote, by the way, of setting family member against family member, set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and so forth, it comes from Micah chapter 7, verse 6. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter, daughter rises up against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. So the Jew, Jewish traditions would take this verse in Micah, and they themselves said that there would be family strife before the coming of the Messiah. And so actually it was true. There was family strife, and there always will be, because this thing about household salvation is a crock, ladies and gentlemen. It's not true. There's going to be strife in families. Some people are going to believe and some are not. I had an atheist father, and I've got, I speak from experience here. I know how this works. Let's look at some scriptures about being betrayed by members of your own household. Psalms 41 verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Of course, that was quoted in reference to Judas Iscariot betraying Jesus. Being betrayed in your own household is like being betrayed by your own close friend right there in that band of disciples. Psalm chapter 55 verses 12 through 14. For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor is it one who hates me who has exalted himself against me. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion, and my familiar friend. We, who had sweet fellowship together, walked in the house of God in the throng. Oh, that is a horrible way to get betrayed, to get beaten by somebody who was your friend. Nothing worse than betrayal. And Jesus said, that's going to happen to you when you go out and preach the gospel. You think Christianity is for wusses? It's not. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, here you have a situation where a loyalty to the gospel conflicts with loyalty to the family, and Jesus is saying, you better make a choice. You better choose me and not your family. I like to, this is a good verse to read on Mother's Day or Father's Day. He who loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. Now, of course, the scripture has plenty of things, plenty of places where it says to honor your father and mother. It's the first commandment with a promise, Ephesians 6. And, of course, it's in the Old Testament in the Ten Commandments. So, of course, Christians are supposed to honor their father and mother. However, that assumes that the father and mother is not taking the child away from worship of God or worship of Jesus. Jesus says very clearly here, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of Jesus. And if you love your son or daughter more than Jesus, then you're not worthy of Jesus either. And people will put their families up above everything. The mafia, but heck, even the mafia does that. So, I mean, it sounds harsh. That it almost sounds anti-family, but it's not. Remember, the context. He's talking about persecuting father and mothers. For If we go back to the previous verse, Jesus says, For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. That means that some sons are going to have fathers who don't believe, and they're going to persecute the son. And some mothers are going to have daughters who don't believe, and the daughter is going to persecute her mother. Turn her in to the government, whatever. So it's, we're talking about persecuting family members. And then Jesus said, if you love your persecuting father and mother more than me, then you're not worthy of me. It's not just talking about fathers and mothers in general. Again, context is king. You have to look at the context of a passage to get its full import. Well, this verse should answer a perennial question. What did, to do if parents command, command their children to do something contrary to the will of God? Well, you obey God. You don't obey man. If you're 
father tells you to go help him rob a bank, you say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. Oh, but you're supposed to obey your parents. Nonsense. You're supposed to obey your parents in the normal course of family life, not life, not when he's asking you to rob a bank. Let me read a quote from Adam Clark on this order. Quote, if, in order to please a father or mother who are opposed to vital godliness, we abandon God's ordinances and followers, we are unworthy of anything but hell. My sentiments exactly. It's interesting to me, a lot of times in judicial systems in nations of the East and cultures of the East, that family relationships get in the way of justice. China has been notorious for this, where People will not testify against their children or their parents, and they will cover up all kind of crimes because it is considered of a higher duty, that one's duty to one's family is higher than duty to justice. Well, they had the same problem in Israel, too. Here's a quote from the law, Deuteronomy 33.9, about the Levites. He, referring to Levi, said about his father and mother, I do not regard them. He disregarded his brothers, Levi disregarded his brothers, and didn't acknowledge his sons. For they, Levites, kept your word and maintained your covenant. Now, it's not exactly clear what that refers to. Some scholars think that means that the Levites did not favor their brothers and their sons in judicial judgments. They treated their family members just as any other person before the law. The Levites were, of course, responsible for the uh, maintenance of the legal system. And they were fair about it, and they didn't let they didn't let nepotism get in the way. Some people say it refers to the fact that when they were required to kill the idolaters during that unfortunate incident at Mount Sinai with the golden calf, they went ahead and did it. They didn't give regard to their family relations. They executed the judgment of God. So whatever it is, whatever it means, the point is, is you don't honor your father and mother above God's law. And Jesus right here says this, if you love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of Jesus. That's a message that's not often taught because most of the time the problem is people don't honor their mother and father enough. But we need to give both sides of the story. Matthew chapter 10 verses 38 through 39. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Now, first of all, this idea of taking up your cross has become such commonplace English that we translate it as, or we interpret it as, taking up troubles and tribulations and all for Jesus. But the original meaning was a criminal, when he was condemned to death, he's carrying the crossbeam of his cross to this place of execution. He takes up his own cross so that he can be planted, uh, nailed to a cross, and crucified. Remember, that's what happened to Jesus. He carried his own cross till he collapsed from fatigue and pain. So that's what Jesus is talking about. Now, Roman executions were not, well, let's put it this way, crucifixions were not the normal way that Jews executed criminals, but they were under the jurisdiction of the Romans, and the Romans did execute criminals that way. And so I imagine the Jews would know what Jesus was talking about when he said, take up your cross and follow me. Those 12 apostles, they're told about all the persecution they're going to face. And then Jesus says, and you've got to be ready to die and be crucified with me. And if you don't, you're not worthy of me. You talk about high standards for commitment to Jesus. None of this, well, you know, you get saved and God will make you a millionaire, give you a vacation home and a jet airplane. Jesus says, Anyone finding his life will lose it, and anyone losing his life because of me will find it. Well, the life number one, he who 
finds his life will lose it. The finding li- the life that is found, life number one, refers to the advantages of life in this world, according to John Gill. In other words, you find your life by avoiding the persecution that comes from following Jesus. You got your nice education, your nice job, your nice status, social status and all that. You can find that, but you're going to lose Jesus. But the second life here, which is anyone losing his life, that's life number two, because of me will find it. Well, losing your life number two means being crucified on a cross and killed. Jesus is speaking literally here. Well, now, you know, that's according to John Gill. It could be he was saying anyone who finds his life of status and pleasure and monetary security and social prestige and so forth is going to lose it. Anyone losing that life, that life of status and prestige and security and so forth because of Jesus will find it, meaning finding eternal life. It could mean that. But John Gill says anyone finding his life will lose it. The finding that first life is finding the life of security and prestige. And anyone losing his life literally by being nailed on a cross, because he just finished by talking about taking up your cross, that's all right. You're going to find eternal life because you're going to be raised from the dead and you're never going to die. Whichever way it is, we get the idea. There's a, there's a dying that comes with following Jesus. There's a dying. We've got to die to our current mm, enthusiasms our current addictions, our current lust, our current visions, our current drives, all those things don't mean a thing. The only thing that matters is following Jesus. And you seek first Jesus, he'll add all that other stuff to you. Everything that you need, he'll give you. And you won't care about that other stuff anyway that you lost. You think Paul cared about that he wasn't a big shot Jewish rabbi anymore? Do you think, he get, do you think that he got up every morning and spent one second of worrying about all the stuff that he counted as dung? I doubt it. I know he didn't. He didn't care because he had Jesus. All right, let's go to, well, let's look at how John, how Jesus himself carried his own cross. This is John 19, verse 17, carrying his own cross. He went out to what is called Skull Place. King James has Golgotha. Well, here it says right here, which in Hebrew is called Golgotha, the place of the skull. He carried his own cross. Jesus is our example. If Jesus carried his cross and was killed, that might happen to us. Now, of course, that doesn't mean literally that everybody's going to be killed, but it means that every that's that's the ultimate example, and, and the greater includes the lesser. That means that whatever it is in your life that you're holding on to, just count it as being killed, is going to be crucified. It means nothing compared to being a disciple of Jesus. It includes lesser evils than death, this carrying of the cross. Gill says, John Gill says, it's all sorts of afflictions, reproaches, persecutions, and death itself, and particularly the ill will, hatred, and persecution of near relations and friends. Not pleasant. We often forget the primary reference, as I said earlier, which refers to being crucified, but nonetheless, there's the other stuff too. Let's go to Matthew 10, verse 40. The one who welcomes you welcomes me, and the one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Ah, now we finally get into some good news for these 12 apostles who are being sent out on their mission because some people are going to welcome them. Some people are going to persecute them, but there's always going to be people in the elect who are going to receive the word of Christ. Jesus is here trying to encourage his apostles after, after probably scaring them to death with all the stuff he said before. But he said, no, you don't need to worry about all that because some people are going to receive the word. Now, this is a good verse for those who like to denigrate the authority of the New Testament apostles, like Paul especially, because it says, the one who welcomes Jesus welcomes him, God, who sent me, Jesus. The one who sent Jesus is welcomed. Let me say that again. (laughs) Let me say that again. 
that uh, the one who welcomes Jesus welcomes God who sent Jesus. That's the way the verse goes. So when people reject an apostle, they're rejecting Jesus. And when they reject Jesus, they reject God. I remember I was doing a Bible study in China. And I mentioned something about Paul the apostle said something somewhere. And some a woman in the Bible study said, well, that was just Paul's opinion. And I said, oh, no. No, no, Jesus, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. You reject his word, you're rejecting Jesus' word, and don't you ever forget it. That's typical liberal schlop that has been poisoned, that has come into the church of Christ and poisoned it. It's nonsense. Jesus says exactly the opposite of what liberals say. The one who welcomes Jesus welcomes the God who sent me, and the one who welcomes an apostle welcomes Jesus. And that means if you don't welcome the Apostle, you're not welcoming Jesus into your life. Matthew 10, verse 41. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he is righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. Now here Jesus is referring to his apostles as prophets. He's using Old Testament language, language they would understand. And the sense here, of course, would be a prophet as a foreteller of it rather than a foreteller. Most prophecy was foretelling. In other words exhortation, I'm teaching you, I'm exhorting you, I'm warning you, I'm admonishing you, that kind of stuff, rather than such and such is going to happen in the future. But at any rate, these uh, divinely commissioned apostles, if somebody would welcome them, they're going to get a prophet's reward. Well, at first thing you think, well, a prophet's reward, what's that? Most prophets got rewarded with death in the, in the Old Testament. Well, I think that what it means here is that if you receive what the apostles are saying, you're going to receive the reward of what they tell you. In other words, the words themselves that they're telling you will be your reward because they're speaking of the kingdom of God, and you're going to be in the kingdom if you accept what they say. So that's the rewards you're going to get if you receive this pro- these prophets or these apostles. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous, and again, that's referring to his apostles, they receive a righteous person's reward. Again, what is a righteous person's reward? Well, there's the feeling good of doing right, and people treat you right, and they don't cheat you, and that kind of stuff. And I'm sure that's true, but I really think that the main reference here is that the reward you receive is the words of those righteous of that righteous person. The news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God, that's your reward. That's what's going to happen when they receive the word. Now, there's an example of someone receiving a prophet. Well, the Shunammite woman... Second Kings 4, 9 through 10. Then she, the Shunammite woman, said to her husband, I know that the one, Elisha, who often passes by here is a holy man of God, so let's make a small room upstairs and put a bed, a table, a chair, and lamp there for him. Whenever he comes in, he can he can stay there. Now, what kind of reward did the Shunammite woman get? Well, Elijah, Elisha excuse me, came and said, you're going to get pregnant. So she got pregnant. She got a son. That's a pretty good reward. And then one day the son had a heat stroke, head hurt, died. Elisha rose him from the dead. That's a pretty good reward. There's a prophet's reward for you right there. But again, I think the the reward is the fa- is the kingdom of God. The words that the that these apostles were speaking was the would be the reward of those who heard the the word of the apostles. By the way, when it when Jesus talks about receiving uh, a righteous man, referring to his apostles, this probably does not mean forensically righteous, legally righteous, where you're just as if you never sinned, where you're justified. The type of righteousness we have when we believe in Christ, probably just talking about someone who basically tried to keep the moral law, or the, the Mosaic law even, what we would call a good person. Even though we know that no man is good before God, we use it in a different sense. We say somebody's a good person. Matthew chapter 10, verse 42, And whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. 
Again, we're talking about receiving a prophet's reward, receiving a reward for helping the prophet. And how do you get that? Just give them a cup of cold water. Now, you think, well, that's not a big gift. Well, it's not really, but in that hot desert climate, can you imagine how good a cup of cold water would taste when it's hot, you're sweaty? Why did Jesus call his apostles little ones? Well, because they were uneducated, poor, mean, and contemptible in the eyes of the world, as Gil says. That's why they're just little ones. They're not big shots. They're little people. These people who established the church of Jesus Christ, a billion people strong. These people who established the kingdom of God on earth, the kingdom, the people in the kingdom of the people of which are going to inherit the kingdom are going to inherit the world. These people were nothing but illiterate fishermen. And you give a cup of cold water to them, you're not going to lose your reward. Again, you help out the people who are spreading the gospel and God will reward you. Jesus promises you that he will never lose his reward. If you see somebody that is given their life to the Lord, help them out in any way you can. I remember there's this young woman, I guess she was about 28, 29, or 30 while we knew her, and she was getting so many people saved, so many people saved, she lost track of them. One day I just wanted to get encouraged, and I said, can you tell me somebody's gotten saved recently? She said, no. About five minutes later she said, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, I led somebody to the Lord yesterday, I forgot to tell you about her or him. So... Somebody like that, oh yeah, we helped her out any way you can. I prayed for her, advised her. She, you know, she'd hang around after our meetings all the time. We give her romantic advice. I mean, you know, help people like that. Do it because you're not going to lose a reward. And notice that it says anyone who gives just a cup of of water, even the smallest reward given to apostle of Jesus earns a reward, as John Gill says. Even a smallest thing, the smallest thing you can do to give to to help somebody who's spreading the gospel. That means even the poorest of people can help Jesus' messengers. It doesn't have to be money. It could be a cup of cold water. It could be an encouraging word. Who knows? Whatever it is. All right, that's the end of Matthew 10 as we see what it takes to be a disciple of Jesus going out to spread the kingdom in hostile territory, to see what it's like to be persecuted and at the same time to be rewarded. Hope you enjoyed this video. We'll take up Matthew chapter 11 next. <music>